Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact? You can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Welcome to Tales to Terrify, part of the District of Wonders Network, featuring Starship Sofa, Crime City Central, and Protecting Project Pulp. Everyone has a story in the District of Wonders. Come and find yours. Good evening, children of the night. Come. Come in. Come in and know that you are welcome. Welcome to the Nook, to this, your 96th visit. Welcome to Tales to Terrify, and welcome to fall and to looming winter. I'm Lawrence Santoro, and we have a lovely time planned for you tonight. Tale-telling and poems around the fire. And, well, don't just stand there. Come in, grab a warm beverage and sit. Let me unspool the tale of how we've come to have the two poems, Cat and the Mermaid's Last Breath, that we'll read here tonight. Just before Halloween, we, Ms. Cecilia and I, had a very pleasant and too short visit from an old chum, Diane Severson Morey. Diane is the segment producer and host of Poetry Planet on the Starship Sofa, She's also a sometime narrator of tales and a reader of verse here in our neighborhood of the District of Wonders. Diane was passing through Chicago, twixt her home in Paris and her old home place in Wisconsin, and she opted to spend an evening in the nook. Over morning food and chat, she delved forth a slender book of poetry that had intrigued her, said book being The Offspring of the Moon— by Irish poet John W. Sexton. I read a few pieces. They were rather wonderful. And being a guy who still thinks it's pretty neat to meet a book over cinnamon buns then own the book before the buns are crumbs, I kindled the thing, and there it was. I contacted John a few hours after Diane left and asked for and received permission to present a few of his poems here. 
an interesting fellow, John Sexton. As mentioned, John is Irish and is a poet. In addition, he's a rock singer, a short story writer, a novelist to children and young adults, and a radio playwright. His poetry has been published extensively in literary journals in Ireland and elsewhere. He wrote 103 episodes of the children's radio drama series The Ivory Tower for RTE Radio. The series featured the adventures of Johnny Coffin, the 12-year-old drummer for the Dead Crocodiles Band. The show led to him writing three novels based on the adventures of Johnny and his girlfriend Enya Murphy. The Johnny Coffin Diaries, Johnny Coffin School Dazed, and The Enya Murphy Diaries, all published by O'Brien Press. Well, back to the immediate. Diane had been intrigued by that portion of John's poetry that contained elements of science fiction and fantasy. I was attracted to the darkly humorous vein of them and, and the frankly just plain dark aspects of some of his poems. So... You'll hear two tonight, both read by Cecilia Santoro. And here, the first for the evening, is Cat by John W. Sexton. My black coat is speckled with husks of egg. Fleas navigate the currents of my fur, zigzag over my itching skin. Ticks cluster behind my ears like jewels. In the corner of each eye are crusted tears of gunk. Infection has hitched cunningly to my claws. My scratch will blacken your blood in days. I'm no pussycat. I'm just cat. I'm the shadow of the crossed path, the ninth cat in a bad week, the cry like a baby in the darkened hedge. I'm the mog who shut the moon black. Don't tease my ear with your finger. Puss-puss me like some stuffed toy. I'm the cat of black luck, the hiss from the basement, the compiler of rats at the back door, and nobody's purring pet. Thank you, John. And thank you to Celia. Cecilia Santoro is a retired teacher of French, Spanish, art, and other things. She is also a poet, an artist, and, being my wife, a very patient person. We'll have more from her and from John Sexton anon. That reading, by the way, is dedicated to, well, you know who, to Mahler, the ink-black cat of the nook, of course, who, of course, is nothing like the cat of cat. Mahler has a strict capture and release policy as regards mice and such. Today, November 8, is the official release date for another terrific anthology of the weird Canopic Jars, Tales of Mummies and Mummification from Great Old Ones Publishing. I received my contributor's copy just a few days ago, and it is an outstanding offering by a fledgling publisher based in the mountains of New Hampshire. I haven't had a chance to read many of the stories in Canopic Jars, but what I have seen is truly excellent, so stop by Amazon and have a go. And Tales to Terrify's Professor of the Weird, Kevin Lucia, has a new book out later this month from Crystal Lake Publishing, Things Slip Through. 
is a collection of short fiction that gathers itself into what Ray Bradbury might have called an accidental novel. And if you've been listening to Kevin's Horror 101 lectures here in the Nook, you'll have a pleasant treat essaying this linked collection that I, I know you'll find rich and dark resonance. And from now through November 15, you can get the inked paper edition of Things Slip Through for only $11.99 U.S. To take advantage of this pre-release offer, go not to Amazon, but to... Oh dear, oh dear, it's a complicated one. But don't worry, it'll be on the Tales to Terrify homepage and Facebook page. It is www.createspace.com slash 441 6308. Again, as I said, this will be on the Tales to Terrify homepage and on our Facebook page. And best wishes for it, Kevin. This, by the way, is the second book in as many months for Joe Mainhart and for the Crystal Lake Publishing Company. This past Halloween saw the release of Fear the Reaper. Excellent. And now this. Keep up the good work, Joe. And I hope I got your name right that time. Fiction. Tonight we have two tales that I know will tease all palettes. The first is by L.R. Bonehill. L.R. describes himself as a writer from the dark heart of England. His short fiction has been published by Dark Fuse, W.W. W. Norton, Strange Publications, and Nikon. His work has appeared alongside authors such as Peter Straub, Joe R. Lansdale, Gary Brownbeck, and Joyce Carol Oates. Here is Whispers of the Sea by L.R. Bonehill. A grim veneer of dust was the only testament to the fact that the house had stood empty for so long. It lay like memories on every surface, gathered in every corner, hid in every dark recess. Yet it wasn't the first thing to strike Michael as he opened the door and stepped into the small lobby. It was the complete sense of absence that shocked him and held him motionless for a while as the door swung back into its frame with a dull thud. He tossed his bags down beside the empty coat stand and caught his reflection in the gray surface of the mirror, saw how haggard it was, his face drawn and sallow, his corn silk hair beginning to turn gray at the temples. Turning away quickly, shuffling the keys from hand to hand nervously, he began to make his way through the house, opening doors and windows as he went. This undeniable sense of absence grew as he went from room to room, as if he were moving in a void where nothing dared to stir, and in doing so himself he was violating some long unwritten rule. He felt uneasy in his own house. Sadness and quiet desperation followed him like a shadow at his feet. He paused in the study, looking down at the view beyond the French windows and touched a hand to the cold glass. Dull light glinting off a photograph frame on the desk beside him flickered in the corner of his eye. He pulled away from the windows and turned the frame towards him smiling in return to the three faces that grinned out at him. 
The manuscript, along with a folder containing notes and sketches, still lay on the desk in a small, neat pile, untouched like everything else here for so long. It was pinned down by a short length of driftwood, stark against the white pages, its timber dark, its edges splintered and ragged. He picked it up, turned it in his hand, and in the twists and bends of its knots he saw the shadow of a little girl bending down beside a rock pool. Off to one side of the house, where the land sloped gently down to its lowest point above the beach, a short pathway led to a flight of steps cut into the rock that twisted down to the shingle below, an iron handrail guarding the way. At the top of the steps, Michael lifted Rachel against his shoulder. The wind picked up a little as they descended, making Rachel cling tightly to him and Gina urge him to watch his step. Once safely down, he held Rachel with one arm and tried to take her shoes off with the other, while she struggled against him, eager to explore. Down, Daddy, down, she kept saying, making it more difficult for him to ease her shoes off as she kicked her legs about. At last he set her down and watched her wiggle those small feet in the sand. He smiled to himself at such a simple, unexpected pleasure as the sand rose between her toes, a squash down and rose again sand spilling onto the rise of her foot. She squatted down on her haunches, feeling the dry grains of sand at her feet, brushing them away, before pressing her hand against the ground and sweeping it in a wide arc around her. She let out a short giggle, sweeping the ground again, leaving small ridges of sand to mark her path. She did this a number of times, pushing her hand back and forth, forcing it deeper each time to create larger ridges, before switching hands and repeating the process to her left. She pivoted around, holding Gina's leg for support, her tiny feet shuffling and again swept first right then left, enclosing herself in a circle. There, she said eventually, satisfied that her work was done. You can't reach me now, Daddy, can you? She sat proud in her circle, arms raised above her head, pigtails and red ribbons caught and twisting in the wind. Gina bent down to her. You like the sand, sweetie? Isn't it wonderful? She asked. They played there together a while, Gina letting the sand fall from her hand down onto Rachel's in a steady flow. Can you feel all those tiny grains slipping through your fingers? There are hundreds of them, thousands. Thousands? Rachel repeated gravely. Thousands, said Gina, taking another handful and pouring it on the small upturned palm. Here, thousands more, and all along the beach there's more and more. More sand, shells. Pebbles, little tiny creatures, all sorts of lovely things. Shall we go and explore? Would you like that? Rachel nodded her head emphatically and allowed her mother to brush the sand from her hands and feet, dust a few grains from her cheeks. Then she was off, anxious to discover the secrets this place held for herself, Gina yelling out for her to be careful. Michael looked out to the sea as it rolled against the shore and in that moment wished more than anything else that Rachel could share the joy of seeing the ocean and the sand, the ragged cliffs above. His face must have betrayed this line of thought. Gina read it there intuitively. She took his hand, clasping it firmly. You know, she said, she can experience and appreciate this in all sorts of ways of that we can't even begin to conceive. Close your eyes for just a minute and smell the salt of the sea. Feel the wind in your hair, the sand under your feet, and imagine what it all must be like for her. She closed her own eyes for a moment, breathing deeply of the fresh sea air. It must be extraordinary, Michael, and that's a wonderful thing, surely. You saw her just now. She was enthralled, enchanted. That will stay with her forever. 
She'll always remember this as some sort of magical time and place. That's nothing to feel sad about. He touched her arm lightly, nodded, and returned his gaze to the ocean. She smiled and gave his hand a final squeeze before setting off down the beach after Rachel. He stayed at the edge of the shore, content to watch them for a while as they walked hand in hand along the beach, pausing here and there to examine a new find, or to crouch in the sand again, mother and daughter happy and at peace. He stood thinking of what Gina had said and hoped that she was right, yet somehow it seemed more than he dared wish for. He turned her words over and over in his mind. For some time he was aware of nothing else, lost in the wanderings of his imagination and the sound of the sea, until he heard a small and distant voice shouting out to him. He could make out Gina beckoning to him and Rachel kneeling beside her, holding something in her hand and waving it in his direction, breaking his chain of thought, leaving it to rattle away at the back of his mind where it would expand and grow or fade into nothing. He followed the trail of their footsteps across the sand. They were waiting at a rock pool, Rachel neatly balanced at its edge, steadied by a protective hand at her shoulder. Her fingers played in the shallow water which splashed and rippled at her touch, while her other hand triumphantly held aloft a small piece of driftwood. Look, Daddy, Mummy said you'd tell me a story about where it came from. She said it's from a ship. Her voice was hushed and low with quiet awe. He took it from her, turning it in his hand. If it is, it's from a lost ship and there's always a good story in that. I'll tell you about it later at bedtime. How's that sound? He asked, handing it back. He stroked her head, feeling the softness of her golden hair. So, do you like it here, sweetie? Do you think you'll like living by the sea for a while? She nodded her head three times in quick succession, still playing with the driftwood in her hand, splashing it into the rock pool. We're at the end of the world, aren't we, Daddy? she said, turning her face towards the sea. He set the driftwood down and felt the emptiness inside him like a raw wound. Twilight gray filled the room as the cold October wind swept around the house, accompanied by the rising, clattering music of the chime outside. Despite the gale, he could still hear the lap of the sea as it bumped at the shore, the silver crests of the waves splashing down, and he felt suddenly so alone. He went to the window, hoping to make out the lights of the harbor town in the distance. All he could see were the silhouettes of the cliffs that spanned the coastline, dark and heavy and ancient. The drinks cabinet in the lounge was still fairly well stocked, and he retrieved a tumbler and bottle of Jack Daniels. He felt distinctly ill at ease as he went from room to room. The house now seemed so large and vacant that he felt he was disturbing some sort of balance simply by being there. He imagined shadows in dark corners reaching out to him and a naked whisper breathe against his ear as he crossed the hallway back into the study. He closed the curtains, shutting out the darkness of the night and the sea, flicked on the lamps in the corners of the room, and poured himself a liberal measure of bourbon. Its warmth and fire cleansed his throat of the taste of emptiness and dust. He shot back another, letting it drown out the rush of the wind and the sweep of the sea. Then he sat in the stony silence and stillness and wept until falling into a fitful sleep where he found troubled dreams of dust and decay. Sitting down at the desk, hangover beating steadily in his head, he retrieved the folder beside the manuscript, easing out its contents with care. He glanced through the pages of notes, surrounded by swirling doodles, underscored in thick marker, highlighted, asterisked. They would appear senseless and haphazard to anyone else, but all the thought and meaning came back to him immediately. 
words and sketches that told the story of a blind girl who saw magical things in her dreams that no one else could possibly imagine. A little girl who saw wondrous places and entrancing visions of such splendor and magic that even had others seen them too, they would never have let themselves believe that such hope and beauty could exist. He skimmed through the sheaf of papers as it all sped back into his mind, the final words he had written, telling of how the little blind girl had become more and more enchanted with her own magical world, that she had finally been swept away to those places forever by the waves of a whispering sea. It seemed like only hours ago that he had sat here, pen in hand, words flowing and halting, yet it was a distance that could never be bridged, a lifetime ago, a world ago. The summer was unusually long and warm. Even the wind breezing in from the ocean was cool and calm. The days went by quickly and peacefully, a time of simple and easy joy. What Gina had said at the beach that first day had indeed rattled away inside Michael's head, where it slowly twisted and turned. It was always there, whispering to him, edging ever forward to take on shape and form, a voice that soothed and troubled in the same moment. He sat at the desk and stared out to sea, watching it lap and hiss at the shore. Through the door opening onto the hallway, he could see Gina sitting in the lounge, a glass of red wine in her hand. Quiet music drifted in from across the hallway. She raised her glass and smiled, her eyes bright and shining in the light cast by the lamps. As the piece ended, she shut the stereo off and came across into the study, her nightshirt flapping at her legs. You really started something with that story of the missing ship and all that other mysteries of the scene nonsense you've been telling her, she said. You know she keeps that driftwood beside her bed ever since you told her it was magic. She's got a rich imagination, that's all. She understands the power that stories can have if you have a little belief, a little faith. He took his glasses off and wiped them on his sleeve, spinning out of silence. That driftwood, by the way, it is magic. Magic or not, I'm just glad that she's happy. Anyway, it's late. I think I'll go up, she said, draining the last of the wine. It lingered on her lips, glistening ruby in the pale light. Joining me? No, no, you carry on. I'll be there soon. It's just, there's something you want to finish, right? Right, he said. It's all beginning to come together. I just want to keep that momentum while it lasts, you know. Bending down, she hugged his shoulder and kissed him on the cheek. Don't be too long. It really is getting late. Gina, he said, stopping her in the shadows of the doorway. He slipped his glasses back onto the ridge of his nose, and she saw herself reflected there, tiny and shimmering. He pointed to the papers on the desk before him. This one's not just for Rachel. It's for all of us. I think it's going to be really special. I'm sure it will be, Mike. I'm sure it will, she said, smiling, and left. He finally set his pen aside an hour or so later and eaten the small pile of papers before him. Flicking off the lamps, he noticed his hand and fingers were smeared with black ink, like shadows of nicotine stains. Stairs creaked under his footsteps and he paused outside Rachel's room, thinking of checking in on her. Daddy? she asked from beyond the door, hearing his footsteps outside. He eased it open quietly and saw that the bed was empty, the covers ruffled and pushed to one side. Rachel sat by the window, her nightgown pale around her, the alabaster light of the sickle moon surrounding her like an oar, her face delicate ivory. Daddy, she said again, turning her face towards him. The dull pearls of her eyes were like a broken promise. Shush, he whispered, going over to her. 
Hey, you should be in bed. What's wrong, can't sleep? He bent down to her, felt her forehead and brushed at her hair. You not feeling well, sweetheart? She nodded her head, reaching out a hand to feel the comforting lines and contours of his face. Outside, the ocean thumped and splashed at the sand and shingle in a haunting lullaby. Tell me a story, Daddy. It's too late. You should have been asleep hours ago. Taking her hand, he led her back to bed and tucked the sheets over her, feeling her body small and fragile beneath. Ollie, her toy bunny, lay on the floor beside the bed. He bent down to retrieve him and placed him in Rachel's arms, smoothing the sheet across his stuffed belly. I was asleep, Daddy, she said, yawning, her heavy lids dropping, her voice thick with tiredness. But it woke me up. What did, sweetheart? What woke you? The sea, Daddy, she said. It was whispering to me, telling me secrets. Summer fell away into autumn, and the first bite of cold wind swept in from the rippling ocean. Bruised clouds skimmed across a leaden sky, and a light shower of rain fell. Gina cut a lonely, wretched figure walking the length of the beach with weary steps, turning occasionally to glance behind her. She held a stuffed toy tightly to her chest with one hand, while the other scrabbled through her hair, tugging and pulling hard at the roots. From where Michael sat at the rock pool, the steady fall of the rain seemed to fog Gina, distort her somehow. Small, distant, and shimmering in the drizzle, he watched her as she followed the curve of the beach and disappeared behind an outcrop of glistening rocks. Her hoarse, ragged cry came back to him, answered only by the gulls wheeling in the sky and the rhythmic sweep of the sea. He hadn't the heart to join her, not again, nor had he the courage to look her in the eye. The desperation and numb panic he had seen there earlier chilled him like cold steel on fevered skin. Twilight soon began to taint the sky further, and the rain slowly abated as he followed the traces of Gina's footsteps along the dark sand, his pace slow and measured. He found her some distance up the beach, sitting crumpled in the shadows thrown by the looming cliffs above. Her face and arms rested against her raised knees, shaking fingers rubbing at her forehead. Ollie lay by her side, face down in the sand, his white tail scuffed and dirty. She looked up only fractionally at Michael's approach, her eyes hooded and dark. He dropped down beside her, tentatively putting a hand to her shoulder. He pulled her close, held her, felt her brittle and trembling against him. They sat together a while, sat and waited. Rachel didn't come back, neither body nor soul. The dream stirred him, legs and arms jolting, face twitching in the cold night. It held him loosely in sleep and made him walk. Down the stairs he followed, chasing the echoes of a lost little girl. The brightness of the red ribbons flowing from her pigtailed hair seared into his mind like a brand. Her delicate, haunting laughter led him down. The lilting strains of a lullaby came from the hush and whisper of the breakers slapping at the shore. It filled the house soft and low like a conch shell held to his ear. He saw her jump the last steps and hit the floorboards an eternity later. She twisted and turned in the narrow hallway, skipping through dust that rose at the passing of her feet to spin and dance in the air around her. It fell and settled with infinite precision before her other foot stepped down, fanning the dust and ash of a thousand memories behind her to choke and stifle him. She skipped and danced, turning, spinning, hair and ribbons sweeping with her, snapping through the air with a keening whistle. She smiled, 
her face ashen, skin blanched in the gray light like the gleam of the moon on a frozen lake. A midnight darkness pooled in her empty eye sockets, and she swept into the study, dust spiraling in her wake. The screen door at one corner of the room banged open and shut, slamming against the side of the house. The wind chime crashed and clattered, sun and moon and stars colliding, one against the other. Out he followed, to where the cliff dropped away into darkness. Dropping with it, he felt his head slam into the wet sand, or he thought it would sink and sink forever. He saw Rachel above him, intangible, incorporeal, a sweeping figure of dust and ash and sand. She bounced away towards the sea, skipping and singing, her voice soft and full against his ear like an intimate kiss. He stumbled after her, all the while reaching out, calling her name. Beyond her, he saw something rising and falling on the crests of the waves, something floating on the sea, something lap at the sand. A hundred sheets of paper drifted in the sea, words and symbols slipping together to create new forms and patterns. At the edge of the sea, she turned a final time, held him with an empty gaze that seemed to look deep inside him, searching for his soul, his secrets. You can't reach me now, Daddy, she said, water dribbling from the pale scar of her lips. Then the wind took her, and moat by moat, it swept her out upon the rippling water. The sea stirred him, shook him from sleep as it washed over his feet, until he awoke cold and vulnerable into the darkest night he had ever known. The moon was slim in the sky and the stars were clouded, hidden from view. He felt himself shiver, his skin prickling and tight around his bones. Another wave splashed against him, before drawing back to leave a tangled knot of seaweed around his ankles. He bent down to pull it away. It felt smooth and shiny to the touch, like silk. He drew it up, held it in the moonlight, and saw red ribbon draped against his palm. The tide whispered at the shore. The wind rushing over the ragged cliffs whispered. The sand shifting beneath his feet whispered, and it was more than he could bear. Over and over that secret whisper blew gently against his ear. Mommy, it said. He sat at the desk, huddled over his work, his fingers brushing the red silk ribbon that snaked across the surface. Its touch warmed him. The words flowed ceaselessly, ink looping and swirling quickly across the paper, the nib of the pen scratching and rasping, the hiss and slap of the rippling tide breathed into him like blood rushing in his ears. He listened willingly, openly, imposing no will of his own onto the words that fell before him, ripping from page to page as if in a fever. His discarded notes and sketches lay at the edge of the desk and scattered on the floor, an empty bottle of Jack Daniels and a cracked tumbler beside them. Eyes still down, he reached out his free hand, found another glass and dragged it to his lips. Bourbon burned down his throat. Another page was added to the unruly pile beside him as the sea whispered long into the dark night. Another and another, until finally the tale was told, and he set his pen down, exhausted and dry. The phone had been ringing for days and he'd ignored it every time, letting the message on the old answering machine kick in. He listened to Gina's voice from a distant past, asking for a name and number. The echoes of Rachel's faint giggling in the background of the recording caused a sharp tug of pain. It rang again and he stopped, turned, glass in hand as Gina's weary voice filled the room, underscored by the... 
Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hiss of the spooling tape. Mike, Michael, please. Mike, answer the phone. We need to talk. This could be the last chance we have, Mike. It's not betrayal, Michael. I know that's how you see it, but it's not betrayal. It's not. It's another child, Mike. Another chance, please. There was a long pause and the tape clicked into silence. The winter wind rushed outside and rain tapped hard at the window in sharp needles. His shadow was cast long and thin across the floor in the murky light of the lamps. It stretched along the wall and followed at his heels as he stepped out into the rain. The downpour lashed him, soaking his clothes and skin instantly. Buffeted by the surging wind, he walked to the edge of the cliff and stood looking out across the sea. The pages of the manuscript whipped and flapped in his grasp as if eager to tell their tale and be free. The round skull of the moon above shone brightly, its light glittering on the undulating ocean, silver winking on the breakers. Mouthing a silent prayer, he threw the pages out into the night. They seemed to be held frozen in the moonlight for a brief moment, hanging in the star-filled sky, before the wind took them. Page slipped from page, fluttering, scattering out, swept up on the writhing wind, it drifted them away, sent them out high above the sea, rising and falling like birds, dipping and wheeling. They rustled and flapped, twisting slowly out and down, out and down. The first hit the sea a little distance from the beach below, rising briefly on a tiny wave. Another page drifted down, and another, and another, until the dark midnight sea was awash with ink and paper. Its secrets and tales returned home. He watched a while longer as the ebb and flow of the tide pulled those pages away into its unknown depths. Then, the offering made, he turned back to the house where lights burned warmly and a small gray silhouette stood in waiting. Together, they listened to the sound of the sea. Jeweled stars sparkled in the black velvet sky as she led him down by a hand as gossamer and fragile as fine lace. Corn husk hair danced lightly around her. Silk ribbons trailing behind, bright and red. Down the cliff steps they went, hand in hand, the ghost of a smile on both their faces. The sand was cool and dry beneath his feet as she led him across the beach, 
A rush of water lapped at his feet and ankles as they edged closer to the shore. Rachel, he whispered, looking down into her dust-mote face that shifted and swirled at the touch of the wind. Shush, she said quietly, holding a finger to her pale lips and shaking her head slowly, sorrowfully. She pulled her hand out of his. It felt like a cool breeze rippling through his fingers, and the sense of her warmth and touch remained. He traced the lines of his palm, feeling the echoes of that touch slip deep inside to warm and fill him. He looked at her a final time before taking a step into the water as it surged forward to meet him. Again and again and again he stepped out into the sea. Cold and dark it embraced him, the insistent pull tugging at him, ripping his feet from beneath him, dragging him out and down. He twisted in the water, catching sight of the shore and the ashen figure that stood there for a moment before the wind rose, and once again took it, swept it away. The sea pounded and slapped violently in his ears as he let the tide draw him away, a piece of driftwood riding the waves to magical places beyond dreams. Michael, she called, her voice small and lost in the deserted study. The feeble lamplight glowed off myriad cracked glasses and empty bottles. Shadowed papers lay scattered upon the floor. A note was pinned to the desk by a framed photograph of the three of them together and happy. A scrawled, jittering hand read, Gina, have a little belief, a little faith. She called his name again, saw that the door that led out the back was open and tapping insistently against the side of the house. The chime clattered as she walked by, down towards the steps cut into the rock. The sea thumped and splashed at the sand below, and she saw a figure lying at the fringe of the beach, water lapping around it as the tide crept in and out. Down the steps she went, heart quickening, eyes never straying from the distant figure. She hit the sand at a run, crossing half the span of the beach quickly, her pace slowing as she neared the shore. An icy chill shook through her, left her still and breathless as the figure shifted. The soft susurration of the sea seemed to fill her in that moment. In the moonlight, the silver shadow curled at the edge of the beach shivered and twitched. It coughed, spluttered, shivered again, back arcing, and finally raised its head. Eyes bright and eager and alive held Gina trapped in their steady gaze. Corn husk hair shone in the light of the moon. Mommy, it said. Thank you for that, L.R. Mr. Bonehill has been here before. Back in our Flash Fiction Roundup, that was visit number 87, he was represented by his tiny terror in the garden. L.R. Bonehill is a master of short and shorter-than-short fiction. He's had stories in numerous anthologies, including Morpheus Tales, The Best Weird Fiction, Volume 2, Another 100 Horrors, Hint Fiction, an anthology of stories in 25 words or fewer, 52 Stitches, in which his In the Garden was collected, and more. You may touch base with him at 
that the place we post on our Facebook and our homepage. And thank you, Nicole Doolin, for your narration of Whispers of the Sea. Nicole has become an old friend, here in the nook at least. She is a voice actor, obviously, and a writer whose fiction, poetry, and plays have been published and performed. Her voice has been heard in various media. She narrates classic literature in her podcast, Audio Literature Odyssey, and has also read contemporary stories for Crime City Central, the No Sleep podcast, and for us here at Tales to Terrify. To learn more about Nicole, visit her website at nicoledoolin.com. That's N-I-K-O-L-L-E-D-O-O-L-I-N.com. Before we dive into tonight's second story, let's lend an ear to a second poem from John W. Sexton's collection, The Offspring of the Moon. This one is entitled... The Mermaid's Last Breath. The lens of the sky a magnified beach, clouds like ghosts of bones, white, delicate ribs, shells of trilobite stippled skin of fish, seas discarded waste. This is what she saw as she floated face up in the breath of a second before she died. Later, fishermen found her thrown against the rocks, her body a rotten carcass of floating flesh. They mistook her for a mutilated seal, and could not possibly have known of her last moment's vision of a desolate non-water beyond the trembling membrane of life. Thank you again, John, to Celia. Again, both of John W. Sexton's poems tonight are from the collection The Offspring of the Moon, published by Salmon Poetry. Back to fiction. Our second story for the evening is, well, it's a Halloween tale, one that's Halloween-themed, but it also brings the chills for fall or for any time of the year. It is The Coffin, and it is by Samuel Rushton, and it will be read by Chris Skinner. Yes, that Chris Skinner. I'll tell you a bit about Sam Rushton after we hear the tale. Here is The Coffin. Richard looked at the black, skinny trunks of the trees in front of his car, the forest. He'd remembered coming here first as a boy pretending to be a knight or a soldier, later as a teenager to experiment in, and now he was a man. He got out of his car and popped open the trunk, took out a shovel and set off walking towards the wood, passing a sign advertising the shopping centre that was to be built there in the spring. But this was the autumn. Richard crunched over the leaves, trying not to think about the last time he'd visited the wood, focusing instead on his destination. Past the trees and across the mud, over a quiet brook and around a marsh was the sycamore. Its mottled bark was flaking off, scarred with lichen that ran up to the trunk to its naked limbs. It was a marker, a gravestone. He began to dig. 
Metal hit mud, cutting through the roots and the worms as he began his slow descent into the grave. It wasn't long before sweat had wet his back. He continued to dig, three feet down, four. Had it been this deep? He wondered for a second if it was the right tree when the shovel hit something that wasn't mud. There was a smell, not the sickly sweet smell of rot that comes from something relatively fresh. This was the death stench, damp and bitter and black. The man retched slightly before scratching the dirt that covered the sack, though he knew he was only delaying having to use his hands. A bird screeched nearby, flapping through the branches. He took away as much of the muck as he could with the shovel before resting it by the open grave, then grabbed the top of the thing in the sack and heaving it up so that it faced him. It was a lot heavier than he thought. The smell was atrocious now, seeming to gouge up past his nose and scratching around just beneath his brain. Coughing, he pulled himself up from the hole and then dragged the body up with him. He rested for a moment there, lying on the forest floor between a pile of mud and the body of his son, wrapped in a sack next to him. It didn't take him long to fill the empty grave back in, then he had a closer inspection of the body. Mud had permeated through the fibres of the sack, colouring the whole thing black, though some patches were darker than others. Old blood. There was also the hole he'd made with his shovel, a slit in the sack where the head was. It was almost like a mouth. He almost felt like laughing at the absurdity of it before tears rolled down his face. I'm sorry, I'm sorry, he whispered to it. Gently, Richard put him over one shoulder, picked up the shovel and set off walking. He was covered from head to toe in mud, which began to dry as he continued walking through the wood. If anybody saw him, they would see a grim figure indeed, though he knew the forest was seldom visited, especially in the middle of the day. Most of the town would be at work or school, perhaps talking about parties they would go to or costumes they would wear. He wished his son could have been that. He wished things that could have been different. The drive home was uneventful, though the temperature had dropped. A mist was just beginning to fall up on the hills surrounding the town. At a set of traffic lights, a pickup truck pulled up next to him. Its driver rolled down the window and knocked a few times on Richard's car. He turned to see an overweight man wave at him, so he rolled his window down. Hey, George. Hey there, Richard. Where have you been? shouted the man. Went to do a bit of gardening at Lucy's dad's house. Gardening? Looks like you took away most of it with you, he said, laughing. Richard smiled. See you later, George, he said, as the light turned green. Yeah, happy Halloween, he called, as Richard drove off slowly. The suburbs where he lived were decorated in all manner of ornamentage, from lone jack-o'-lanterns to riots of plastic gauls draped in woolen spiderwebs. An old man planting a scarecrow in his front lawn looked up and waved. Richard returned it before pulling into his drive across the street. The garage shuddered open mechanically. Lucy was waiting in the living room, sitting at the edge of the leather sofa, nursing a scotch. Is he here? He's in the car. Did it go all right? Did anybody see you? No, said Richard. He had stripped down to his underwear and went to pour himself a drink. Where are your clothes? In the machine. Relax, said Richard. He took a drink and looked out at his lawn. He noticed it needed mowing. Lucy got up and began to walk towards the garage. Where are you going? I want to look at him, said Lucy. Richard followed and rested a hand on her shoulder, leaving muddy finger marks on her white jumper. There's nothing to see, he said softly. She turned, eyes bloodshot with tears. The couple stood in the dim hallway for a moment, holding each other. Richard finished his drink and took her by the hand, leading her towards the bedroom. He stepped out of the shower and rubbed a towel through his hair, 
looking at the blurred reflection of himself in the steamed mirror. The lighting threw shadows across his face. It reminded him of a skull. Lucy was sat in the living room. The television was on, some black and white film. I'm going to put him in the basement, said Richard. Lucy didn't acknowledge him. He went into his car and popped open the trunk, lifting the burlap sack out into an old blanket, which he wrapped the whole bundle in. When he walked away into the hallway, his wife turned and gave out a sob. The basement door was already open, and Richard slowly descended into the dark, his feet guessing where the next step would be. Using the light from the hall, he picked his way past the boxes and unused furniture, then gently lay the body down onto the concrete floor. When he was back at the top of the stairs, he turned around. His shadow made the basement a lot darker, though he imagined he could still see the spots he had put the boy, wrapped in a muddy sack, and one of the blankets he used to have on his bed. Richard shut the door and went to watch the rest of the film with his wife. The evening seemed to fall suddenly. The street lights that stabbed through the purple black of night were joined with the glow from hundreds of pumpkins. Parents walked behind groups of vampires, witches, skeletons, werewolves, aliens and other miniature monsters, whilst teenagers wore cheap plastic masks and giggled among themselves. The neighbourhood was busy. Are you sure you want to do this? I think people would understand if we didn't. He's meant to be missing after all, said Richard. No, no, it's tradition, said Lucy. She had dressed as the bride of Frankenstein, the thick makeup covering her puffy eyes. The lipstick that had been applied drunkenly wasn't restricted to her mouth. Richard played with the elastic of a Frankenstein's monster mask. There was the knock at the door. I'll get it, said Richard, slipping the mask on. He answered the door. Trick or treat, shouted two girls. One was dressed as Harry Potter, the other was a robot. Ooh, treat, I think, said Richard, laughing. He held out a bowl full of candy, which they took. Thanks, said Harry Potter, before they both ran to the street. Richard shut the door and went back to his wife. The air was thick with hairspray. Half of her hair was blasted upwards. She took a deep drink of whiskey and looked at her husband. The night wore on, with all kinds of costumed monsters knocking at the door. After a boy dressed as a zombie left the door, Lucy decided to rest. There were dozens of children, all seeming to have a good time. It was Halloween night. Richard waved at some triplets dressed as pigs before closing the door. I think that's about it for the evening. It's getting late, said Richard. How much candy do we have left? A few bars of chocolate. Not much else. Can I have one, said Lucy. Richard went over to the plastic pumpkin head they kept the treats in and threw one over to her. I'll be back in a sec, said Richard. He went to the basement. The door creaked open and Richard flicked on the light switch. It took only a few seconds for the bulb to come on properly. It's electric hum, the only sound down the stairs. At the edges of the room were cardboard boxes, the freezer, a desk he'd had since college, the body of his dead son, unused gym equipment, and a few bags of old clothes. There was a damp area beneath the blanket. It must have been the moisture from the mud seeping out. He looked back to his living room, though Lucy hadn't moved from the sofa. The air here was already beginning to take on that death smell. He wasn't sure how they'd get rid of it. People died in houses all the time. They still got the smell out eventually, though. Richard walked towards the blankets and knelt down, sliding his mask away to reveal a grim, tight face, wet with tears. A lot of the children who'd visited tonight used to visit the house regularly. His son went to their birthday parties. They all went to the same school. Gingerly, he took a corner of the blanket and began to pull back. It made a wet sound as it peeled away, revealing the dirty hessian beneath. He could now see the hole where his shovel had gone through. It was too dark to make out any details. He thought he could make out some shape. 
He wondered what he looked like. What are you doing? came a voice. He looked over his shoulder. Lucy was at the top of the stairs. Her makeup was smudged and her hair had gone from being vertical to a wild mat that went in every direction. She looked even more frightening in this state than she had at the start of the evening. Nothing. Come upstairs. I don't want to be alone. The couple sat in front of the television for a while longer. Nobody else knocked on the door, so they finished off the few chocolates that remained. Where are you going to bury him next? I haven't decided, said Richard. They were watching some film about a vampire, though neither concentrated much on the plot. Maybe you could tell me next time, and I could go and visit him, said Lucy. Richard didn't answer. On the screen, a young woman was running away from a vampire, the camera cutting between her screaming face and the twisted snarl of the monster. Claws tore across her skin. Is there any more whiskey? No, there's a few beers in the fridge, said Lucy. Richard took his arm off her shoulders and went to the kitchen, walking past the door to the basement. The fridge was pretty bare, though there was a beer. We need to go to the store tomorrow, he said. There was some response. He twisted the bottle open and took a sip. The fizz of it stung at his throat, though he found it pleasant. On his way back to the living room, he noticed the basement light was still on. He opened the door and was about to flick it off, but couldn't help looking down at the body. The blanket was open, leaving the faceless sack to seemingly stare straight upward. Frowning, he turned the light off and went back to the living room. The woman had escaped the vampire and was now telling a sceptical detective about the ordeal. He sat next to his wife and kissed her on the forehead. Don't worry, it will all be sorted this time tomorrow, he said. She nodded. The film was coming to a climax. The detective and a priest were standing around a coffin. Come up out of your stupor at life, shouted the priest. The coffin banged open and the vampire opened his mouth to reveal a bloody moor. This film's been on ages, said Lucy. The priest died and the detective was now running through a castle. We could watch something else, said Richard. It's nearly over now, said Lucy. The detective fell against the curtain, yanking it down, letting sunlight pour into a dining room. The vampire threw his hands up to his face as he began to smoulder, and so on. As the credits rolled, the two stood up groggily. Bed, said Richard, stretching. Yeah, I need to shower first, though, she said, and walked off. Richard went to put the empty beer bottle in the kitchen. Then he noticed that the basement light was on again. The shower turned on in the other room. He could hear the faint sound of water falling into the bath. He opened the basement door and turned the light off. Then on. He looked down at the bundle and his heart skipped a beat. The blanket was completely off the body now. The sack lay unwrapped on the hard floor. The forest wetness and the stench of death hung in the air as if the thing had already decided that this should be its new tomb. Richard was about to go down to wrap it back up, then decided against it. Maybe it was just settling. Some inner part might have become dislodged because of the heat. He didn't bother trying to think too much about it and turned the light back off, making sure the door was shut properly. He'd take it away tomorrow. There were other forests around. This would be the last night his son would rest under his roof. The couple lay in bed. The sound of a distant party carried through the night gently. Richard turned to look at the clock on his bedside table, 11.45. Are you awake? said Lucy quietly. No, he whispered. I can't sleep either. So what do you want to talk about? whispered Richard. There was a pause. Are you mad at me? No. Why would I be mad at you? You know why, said Lucy. She'd given up whispering. I said, didn't I? I've always said. I don't blame you. He should have been here. I... Come on, it's okay. It's okay, baby, he said, rolling over. They embraced in the darkness. The sudden knock at the door made them both jump. Lucy looked over her husband's shoulder at the time. Who's that? 
Probably some teenagers, said Richard. Then the knocking came again. They waited. At the third round of knocking, Richard yanked the covers back and got out of bed. I'll be back in a minute. He went down the hallway, then paused in the darkness. The light was on in the basement, casting a yellow glow across the floor. He ignored it this time and went to the front door to look out of the window. There was nobody there. He sighed and began to walk back to the bedroom when there was another series of knocks. It wasn't coming from outside. It was coming from the basement door. Richard froze in the middle of the living room. There was a shadow behind the door. His tongue rolled over his dry lips. The man felt as if he was in a dream. He realised he was holding his breath and released it slowly before walking to the shaft of light. Richard stood in front of the door. With a shaking hand, he reached for the handle and carefully turned it. The door opened. The bed was growing cold. Lucy leaned her body against her knees and waited. Almost five minutes had passed since her husband had gone to check the front door. Richard, she called out quietly. She waited for a response and none came. Maybe he was still talking to whoever had been at the door. Lucy thought for a moment about staying in bed, but realised that she couldn't sleep anyway, so quickly got out and put her robe on. She flicked the bedroom light on as she left, then the hallway. Richard, who was at the door, she said. She blinked a few times in the brightness of the living room. There was nobody there. After having a quick check in the kitchen, she unlocked the front door and looked up and down the street. It was empty now. The mist had fallen from the hills and now rested amongst the dark houses lining the road. The candles inside the dozen or so pumpkins she could see had gone out, making each one of the carved faces seem more sinister in the night. Richard, she shouted into the stillness. Nothing. She closed the front door again and looked toward the hallway. There was still a room she hadn't checked. The basement light was on and she waited at the top of the steps. She saw no sign of her husband, though now that she saw the burlap sack containing her son, she forgot about Richard. She went down the stairs, the wood creaking slightly. Tears welled in her eyes. My baby, she whispered as she gently knelt by the shape. The smell didn't bother her. She was overwhelmed, feeling emotion so raw and powerful she was barely aware of her surroundings. Lucy reached out and paused. Did she want to remember him in this way? She couldn't quite imagine what being beneath the earth could do to a human face, but then she never quite had the chance to say goodbye. The sack was tied at the top with string, which she tried to undo with trembling fingers, though the knot was caked in dirt. She couldn't untie it. That's when she noticed a hole in the sack. Maybe she could just open that a little bit, just for a last look at her son. She missed him every day. She loved him so much, carefully, she put her fingertips on either side of the rip and began to stretch it open. Tears fell from her cheeks, wetting the filthy hessian that rested beneath. My baby, she whispered, shifting her weight to one side so that the light could be cast into the hole. She could just make out a brown shape when something brushed against her fingers. Then a hand was around her wrist. She screamed. Her whole mind seemed to scream. It came out like a banshee's wail and it echoed around her as the hand yanked her arm deep into the sack, pulling her in. She arched her neck back, her other arm twisting against the basement floor, whole body shaking and writhing as she went deeper and deeper. Her last scream was muffled as her face disappeared into the jagged rip. Shoulders, chest, legs, feet. Then nothing.
you for that, Sam. I said I'd tell you a bit about Samuel Maximilian Rushton. I shall tell you just a bit, because just a bit in this case is just a bite. Samuel Rushton is an artist living in Manchester, England. When he isn't making work, he is researching and writing his new book about the life and death of coral reefs. Ah, another data bite. His favorite color is aubergine. And that is all I know of Samuel Maximilian Rushton. About the reader of The Coffin, his name is Chris Skinner. Chris previously worked in the radio show Yes, It's the Ashes on BBC Radio 5 Live in 2009, and he also produced The Game podcast for Times Online. When Chris first began producing the podcast, he restructured the standard musical cues to somewhat jarring effect. For example, he once played the podcast's closing music during the middle of an episode. Chris was also the star of the late-lamented FuckYouChris.com. That's F-U-C-K-Y-O-U-C-H-R-I-S dot com a site devoted to chronicling fans' ironic hatred of Chris. Despite this, fans now appear to only send hate mail as a good-natured bump. I wish I knew more, and wish that what I did know were more coherent, but alas, alas. But thank you for the narration, Chris. And that will be that, children of the night. I would have you be upstanding, gather your wraps and wrap yourselves, and get ready to face the night. There is a damp wind off the lake tonight, and if you have to head into it on your homeward slog, well, I feel for you. Heading windward, you'll doubtless hear things, water rolling, trees clacking, small creatures scuttling in the leaves. No voices calling, though I probably not. But memories, ah, memories, that's another thing. They say the most powerful sense, the one that molds lingering memories, is the sense of smell. So, if you smell something out of the ordinary out there tonight, more than just the perfume of the city at night... I suggest you ignore it. Don't stir the leaves with your toes to see what's down there. And maybe, maybe you'd best run. Run on home. Climb the stairs. Doff your duds. Pull on your nightshirt and cap and hop into bed. Pull the covers over and take shallow breaths. Then let yourself go and find your way into pleasant Dreams. Hmm. This presentation has been brought to you by the District of Wonders Network, dedicated to podcasting the finest genre fiction. You can learn more about the District of Wonders and their many literary productions. 
deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Want to get a chiseled look in the jawline? Sculpt and shape your jawline with added volume from Juvederm Volux XC. Juvederm Volux XC is an injectable gel specifically designed to be robust enough to improve moderate to severe loss of jawline definition. And it is the first and only hyaluronic acid filler approved for the jawline. Add volume to your jawline for a chiseled look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M dot com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Actions at their website, www.districtofwonders.com. Thank you for listening.